Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. If you're into watches, you'll love this interview. But even if you're not, my next guest will have you thinking about watches in a completely different way. He's the founder and creative director of MBNF, a Swiss watch brand that makes the coolest timepieces I've ever seen. And I've actually delved quite deeply into the watch industry covering events like Dubai Watch Week, which is a great event if you'd like to learn about horology and how brands create their products. But MBNF, which is short for Maximilian Busser and Friends, is what you might call a niche brand. They only make around 200 pieces a year, while companies like Breitling, for example, make around 150,000 watches a year. Their watches are incredibly futuristic and complicated mechanical sculptures, and they're also known for designing desk clocks that look and function like things like spiders, spaceships, and robots. Today, we're speaking to the man who dreams up all these whimsical timepieces. Please welcome the unusually creative and talented Maximilian Busser. Hi, Max. Welcome to the show. Hello, Nadia. Good to be on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. So first of all, I love the name MBNF, which is short for Maximilian Busser and Friends. Why did you choose that name when you started your watch brand in 2005? And how did you arrive at that point? Uh, it's, it's actually, it's the whole question, isn't it? Um, MBNF, I, I chose because I actually hadn't found a better name. Um, what I meant is I only want to work with people who share the same values, the same enthusiasm, the same passion. I wanted to follow what my parents tried to bring me up with, the same values, and, and share only with the people who've got the same values. At the same time, um, watchmaking saved my life. Uh, practically 30 years ago, I started creating watches at Jaeger Lecourt. That was in 91. And I found a family. I found a passion. I found a meaning to my life. But what I did was always create for the market. I was always creating to please people. And it was a complete abnegation of me as a creator. I've always created my whole life. As a kid, I was creating all the time. And I'd become a marketeer. I'd become a guy who thought about what do others want. And I felt really bad about it. I was the CEO of Harry Winston Timepieces at some point in my life, doing incredibly well. We, we multiplied by 10 the revenue in like five years. And realized during those years that while I was getting what most men want, I was actually not getting what I wanted. The tipping point was actually my dad passing away, me going into therapy following that and realizing the last day of my life, I want to be proud of my life. And that means do not create for the others, create for yourself. I started dreaming of what was going to become MBNF a very small, super high-end watchmaking company where I would create what I believe in and only co-create and work with people who share the same values. That's how it all started. That's a really nice story, and it's, it's a totally different approach than most of the other watch brands. So obviously, the watch industry is mainly based in Switzerland. You're Swiss, but you're based in Dubai now. How did that happen? That's a follow-up on being happy, the quest for happiness. Uh, actually, um, the owner of a very famous watch brand called Ulysse Nardin in Switzerland, who's unfortunately passed away, uh, Rolf Schneider, built that brand living in Kuala Lumpur. 
And 12 years ago, I had lunch with him there and said, Rolf, what are you doing in Kuala Lumpur when your brand is in Switzerland? And he just looked at me and he said, I'm seeing my children grow up. I didn't have kids in those days. And it sort of made sense. And when my wife got pregnant eight years ago, I looked at her and we were living in Geneva next to the workshops. I said, um, let's leave. And she looked at me as if I was nuts going, what? But you're married to your company. I said, that's the problem. If I live next to the workshops, I'm never going to see my daughter or my daughters in this case grow up. So let's just go and find somewhere. So we put a pinpoint onto a map, came over to Dubai with three suitcases, our one-year-old daughter, and started living here to see if it was possible. That was uh, six years ago. And it's been fantastic ever since. So you're basically running your company from like remotely. Yes, what well, we're all living now, living through Zooms and, and all these visual conferences, I've been doing for six years. For me, there's nothing really new. Uh, I know for a lot of other people, it's a big shock. Um, I've been doing this for six years and I would fly to, back to the Geneva to the workshops four days a month and have meetings there. And then the rest of the, the year or the week or the month, whatever you want, I would be working from home. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, when my daughters come back from school, I would stop working and we would be a family doing stuff together. And that's priceless. Well, the good thing is now you can be with your daughters all day. <laughs> now I can do all day, but yeah. this has got much more complicated <laughs> yes, the schedule. because they don't understand boundaries anymore. Yeah. But uh, look, we adapt. Human beings are resilient. Human beings adapt. And after the first weeks of going bananas, more or less, we found a sort of routine. That's great. Um, so do you think COVID-19 will affect MBNF's operations moving forward, considering how everyone is adopting this new way of working? Oh, look, let's not kid ourselves. COVID-19 is going to change a lot of things to the whole world. Um, we all, of course, wish that all of this is going to disappear like it was a bad dream. And um, I think it's going, to, it's going to change a lot of things in the way we see um, uh, the way we, we work. First of all, um, one of the, the first actions I took, because I can, I slashed my, slashed my production by 50%. So already, we only used to craft like 220 watches a year, which is nothing, because I've got a theory which is absolutely important for us, is we always produce much less than what the, the market wants. It's, that's one of the paths to happiness as a creator. And now, we just slashed half of it, and we're doing the same for next year because uh, I just want everybody to find it difficult to find one of my pieces. Now, I think most of the other brands are going to have to do the same thing, and it's not going to be that easy for them. The other point which is important is that we've always worked where everybody's working in the workshops, in the office. Now, of course, for our watchmakers, it's more difficult to work from home. But suddenly we've realized that it's okay to work from home. We're actually dealing with this. And not only us, everybody else is seeing that. How are HR departments going to react when somebody comes in and says, I would like to be working from home 50%? Before it was, no way, Jose. <laughs> now it's going to be, okay, we're going to have to be able to consider it. But why, though? I mean, if, if COVID-19, if we find, you know, therapeutic uh, treatments and, or a vaccination and we kind of, um, why, why couldn't we go back to a normal, you know, office setting? 
Well, we definitely could, but we don't have any more excuses to tell our employees that they can't work from home because we've proven over the last months that we actually can manage the company with virtually everybody at home. Right. So, and how do you think this is all going to affect the watch industry as a whole? The, the watch industry has kind of been going through ups and downs in the last few years. Um, they have huge events, usually annually uh, in uh, Basel. Um, do you think that this will kind of make the industry take a sharp turn in any way and change the way they um, market themselves, the way people buy watches? Um, good question. Um I think the only thing we can be sure of today, as we speak, is that we can be sure of nothing. Meaning, especially the watch industry has been a very evolutionary industry, which hasn't changed much, if anything, in the last 30 years. It's just grown. It's grown because there was more and more demand. And um, being very successful has not allowed the industry to rethink itself. The last three months has seriously made everybody rethink themselves. And I think now the industry is going to actually be more creative. It's very interesting. We, we have been brainstorming over the last eight weeks with my team, and we found all sorts of new ideas because we have to, because 90% of our retail partners are closed and 50% of our artisan suppliers are probably going to go bankrupt this year and because we've virtually got no more money to communicate because we slashed our communication budgets and we found some fantastic ideas which we could have very easily found and enabled before covid but we were not thinking that way we were not pushing ourselves to the limit we were not trying to find because everything went very well And okay, we had our ups, I'm talking of the industry, we, we never had a down, but the industry had its ups and downs. And and of course, then it would like, oh, fire a few hundred or thousand people and then just rehire them when it went better. I don't think we're going to think that way anymore. I think we're going to rethink ourselves. What are some of the ideas that you're mentioning that you guys have come up with? Just already in, in communication. If you look at... Um, Uh, three weeks ago, I had never even heard of what an IG Live was, an Instagram Live. And we've organized now our own platform where I'm now interviewing other creators. And we're getting thousands of followers on each of them and, and people actually buying watches just after it. And we're not, we were not an inexpensive piece. I mean, our average retail price is about $130,000 US dollars. And... Um, Every IG Live we do and I talk about whatever are the values and what we're trying to do, boom, behind we've got retailers calling us up, somebody just called us up, heard you live, thought it was incredible, would like to know more about the brand, etc., etc. So that's just one of the many examples. I'll give you another example. Every time we create a product and we've come out with 18 calibers in 15 years, a caliber is like a whole new concept, a whole new engine, that's that's exceptional in our industry, especially for a brand so small as ours. And um, I've kept one of every prototype. That's the one we would show to our customers to take orders. When you look at it today, we're sitting on $10 million worth of prototypes <laughs> at retail value. Wow. Um, products which we've always considered were unsellable because they were prototypes. And now suddenly you look at yourself and say, Can we do something with that? 
yes, of course we could. We're not going to start selling them to right, left, and center. That's not what we're interested in. Can we actually grow and create something even better with this incredible products we've got at home? And we've had great ideas coming out. You're going to see at the end of the year one of the many ideas we've come out with. I'll give you another idea. Um, I'd created a second brand in parallel, which was uh, a much lower price point brand, which is not only watches, but actually completely finalized the whole process, the first prototypes, everything. And I actually killed the brand uh, before it launched in October 2018. Why? Because I don't have enough time already for MBNF. I don't have enough time for my family. And I realized I enjoy the whole creativity process. But creating a brand is an enormous responsibility. It's You can't create a brand and then stop it like two years later. And I just not, was not ready to commit to that. But then suddenly we've got all these ideas that we've already created. And now we're finding ways to actually make them come to life, but in a different way. So um, you'll see that also normally beginning of 2021. Again, something we would not have dared do. That's also interesting. We're always scared of what other people think of us, what our, our fans, the tribe, the followers think of us. Um, this is a moment where you have to stop being scared and take many more risks. We've always been enormous risk takers, but now we're, we're actually pushing this to a whole new level. That sounds super exciting. So just to give people an idea of how your creative mind works, tell me about MBNF's latest release, which I think is the latest relief, release, the Starfleet Explore desk clock, which is a smaller version of something you created um, six years ago. Um, your creations are really playful. They're almost like adult toys, if that's the right term. But they're very expensive toys, of course. This Starfleet clock costs around $10,500 retail. Um, they're limited editions, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Starfleet Explorer is uh, like the Starfleet is a really interesting story. Um, so I'm a, I'm a timepiece creator. We create kinetic sculptures which give time. Our average prices of MBNF timepieces are between 60,000 and 400,000 US dollars. And we craft very few every month, every year. And they're all artisan pieces, all hand finished, etc. Nine years ago, I created a gallery called the Mad Gallery in Geneva, Mechanical Art Devices, which was actually a gallery which curated mechanical art. And from there, I had the idea of approaching other manufacturers of artisans of beautiful mechanical objects and suggesting to them my crazy ideas. So I approached Lepe 1839, which is the oldest high-end clockmaker in the world, they're based in Switzerland also, and we're doing very traditional classic clocks. And they were not doing very well because nobody buys clocks anymore. And I came to them with the design of what was going to be the Starfleet, the very first one. And the CEO, instead of kicking me out, as he probably should have, he looked at me and said, you're nuts, let's do this. And so imagine a super conservative classic clockmaker creating an object like that. And it was an instant success. They sold 175, because it was their 175th anniversary, in less than a few months. And it opened a whole new world for them, where then he came back to me and said, do you have any other ideas? And I said, sure, I've got tons of ideas. Just if you're ready, I will, I will draw at least two new clocks a year for you. And that's what we've been doing over the last six years. We've created 12 clocks. 
And um, so they all, my ideas, but they actually engineer them and, and produce them. It's all handmade in their little factory in Delemont, Switzerland. There are 45 employees there. And so we don't make any money out of this. MBNF doesn't make any money out of it. Really? But it, it, yes, it's, it's not a business uh, focus. It's a creative focus. I enjoy myself like crazy creating these pieces for them. We actually even help them sell them. We help them PR them. And they give us a minimal royalty fee just so that my, my team stop bitching about the fact that we make no money. Um, it, we do that, A, so that I'm happy, B, so that I'm proud, but also to support a little company who, without those designs, which now represent 70% of their revenue, wouldn't exist anymore. And... Fringe benefits, silver lining of being altruistic and not thinking of yourselves, actually, it's made a lot of people discover our brand. I mean, most media don't want to talk about watches anymore. But when we come out with typically the Starfleet Explorer, we were on Hypebeast, on uh, Gear Patrol, on all the cool blogs, websites in the world, wanted to talk about it because it's so amazing. And we've actually, without even thinking about it, we've multiplied by probably two or three our media footprint by actually helping other people help themselves. That's so interesting. Um, so you said that your brand, your brand story is that basically you were inspired by science fiction, which you loved as a kid. But when we think of science fiction, of course, most things related are mechanical, um, combined with kind of fic fictitious ideas. Um, but today, technology has come such a long way. And your timepieces are really fantastic examples of what you can do with mechanical movement. But what are your thoughts on technology like digital connectivity and AI, for example? And how does that figure in the pieces you've created and plan on creating in the future? I know we should never say never, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> There will never be any digital smart components, AI in any of our creations. And the reason behind it is not that I don't like it. I think it's whatever is happening is fantastic. It's because we create kinetic art. We create mechanical sculptures which need to be repairable in 50, 100 or 200 years. And we all know that as soon as you put electronics into it, You can throw it into the dustbin in the next 18 months. So whatever we do, even if it looks completely outlandish, has been machined by incredibly crafted artisans in steel and brass. And I believe that 100 years down the road, even if by any chance MBNF doesn't exist anymore, which maybe would happen, a talented mechanical mechanic and a great watchmaker will be able to remake any part of what we do. So I don't think of our products as heirlooms, but I really think it's important that whatever we create, and there is a reason to that price, whatever we create is incredibly complex to make, but can be repaired in the future. That's an excellent point. Um, so your watches are timeless, we can say. <laughs> but um, so imagine Tag Heuer has a $180,000 connected modular model. What So... I mean, you make a good point. What happens when it breaks? What happens in 100 years from now? It's going to be absolutely, you know, outdated. You know, we, we lived through that with the 1970s digital watches. 
I used to love those watches. Uh, I mean, it's my era, unfortunately. And um, and so the these all these fantastic digital watches of the 70s, or if you remember the the Bulova Acutrons, which were the very first electronic movements, they're fantastic. I collect them. As soon as one breaks, there is no way to repair it because the technology, which was absolutely cutting edge 50 years ago, is completely obsolete today and nobody can repair old technology. We don't want to go down that road. It's such a great answer that you just gave. And it's funny because, you know, I've covered a lot of watch events and we've often had that topic. And for some reason, rarely do you hear that point of view, which is that, you know, you're rendering your product basically, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it when it's going to be out of date? Obsolete. obsolete. Yeah. Um, planned obsolescence, obsolescence, basically. Um, so so that's such an interesting point, and it kind of makes you think about watches in a different way. Um, but you created the first watch, for your first watch for women last year called the Legacy Machine Flying T, which has this super cool high dome, by the way, for people who haven't seen it. It's one of my favorite watches, I, the most beautiful watches I've ever seen. I would definitely wear that one. But why did it take so long for you to make a woman's watch? And do we really need women's watches in this day and age when most timepieces are kind of unisex? That's a good point. Um, MBNF was created in an incredibly... Uh, egocentric way. I created MBNFs to finally be able to create what I believed in and what I wanted to wear. So for the better part of the first 14 years, whatever I would create was for me. And I am not ashamed of it. Um, and it's what enabled us to create these crazy ideas and have the courage to come out with them when no market here, uh, no market research would tell you there's any market for it. And then one day, because I'd settled down in a good way, because I had met my wife, because we had one daughter and a second daughter, and that they're my only family today, I realized I want to create something for them. So it was my way of telling them I love them. And it was incredibly complicated because it's very easy to say I love you, but it's very complicated to create a watch for the woman you love when A, you're a man, <laughs> B, you actually get completely blocked because you're wondering, will they like it? And as soon as you start going into the, well, will they like it, then all your creative juices stop flowing. And it's only when I started thinking, forget about this, will, will they like it? Create a kinetic sculpture you will be proud of and which embodies what you love in those women in your life. And then maybe with a bit of luck, they like it, but that's not the point. And that's how the, the, this, this incredible vertical flying tourbillon, which represents my, my seven-year-old daughter who up till recently wanted to be a ballet dancer and was all the time doing her little ballet, turning or gyrating on herself. So that was the whole idea. Uh, the sun at the back, which is actually the sun, which is the rotor, which is winding up the piece, is actually a symbol of these three women in my life because I gyrate around them today, etc., etc. So it was all these different parts of what they have enriched my life and they have made me love them. I put in the piece. And then, of course, I was terrified because... 
I didn't show it to anybody, and specifically not to my wife, before the day of the launch. She discovered it the day of the launch. And um, that was a beautiful evening. It was an event here in Dubai, and in front of VIP customers of our, our great partners here, the Siddiqui's, um, my wife Tiffany discovered it, and when she stopped crying, she said she loved it. So um, there you go. No guts, no glory. That's that's amazing, and it's uh, it's nice that the way you explain how the creative process is really driven by your own creativity and not what the market wants. And I think as as we evolve, especially post COVID, and we rethink this whole commercialism and you know mass production maybe might change in some way people are really looking for things that are unique and that feel authentic so i think that that's kind of what you're creating with your product which is what makes it stand out so much from all the other watches on the market and the other timepieces um so you're obviously someone who puts creativity at the forefront of everything you do but you also have to run your company um how do you and spend time with your family. So how do you manage your time to make sure you don't get caught up? Uh, I know your days are really busy. Um, you shared some of your schedule with me when we were trying to schedule this interview. How do you avoid getting caught in the hamster wheel of life that makes us kind of disconnect from our creativity? I do my best, but my best is not enough. And I think that's the case for everyone. So um, coming here, living in Dubai was a big step towards helping me be more creative and I've created way more in the last six years than in the nine years before. Why? Because I was not in the workshops. I was not in the office. I was not in meetings all the time. And therefore I had time to think. Um, COVID has changed that because, because with COVID we're rethinking everything. So we're in virtual meetings all the time, but that will calm down at some point. I haven't created a thing in the last three months. But that's okay because I've already created for the next seven years. And even if I was going to create something, it will be put at the end of the bandwagon and it will come out in eight years. And probably when I see it in eight years go, oh, I don't want that because the man I will be in eight years will probably not want that product. So that's also the other thing which I've discovered is that it's okay to let go. It's okay to have moments where you don't create. Creation, creativity comes in waves, for me at least. The long dry spells, and then suddenly the big wave arrives, and boom, 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 it, it comes out. I often don't know why or when. Well, the when, yes, I know. The when is when I'm always all alone. I always create when I'm completely disconnected from the rest of the world. So typically, one of the habits I took um, when, since I'm in Dubai is when it's not too hot to maybe every two, three days to sit in the garden for one hour without a phone, a phone uh, and the emails and the WhatsApp and the IG and all that is an incredible creativity killer. Uh, so without anything, and I afford myself one hour to think. Now, who has had that luxury recently in their life? An hour to think every two, three days. Sometimes I'll think about creative. Sometimes I'll think about my life. Sometimes I'll think about the business. But I will not, I will not take anything else during those 60 minutes. And when you let your mind wander, suddenly you go to places you didn't expect. That is one of my greatest secrets. It's true what you said. I, I really realized that recently how, you know, whenever you're on 
uh, Instagram or on social media, it really robs you of any of your own kind of free thinking. And it's so important to make a point these days of kind of disconnecting. Um, your your own name is quite something too, by the way. I looked it up and it comes from the Latin word that means the greatest. Do you think <laughs> do you think that's affected how ambitious you've been as a watchmaker and also as a human being in any way? I used to hate my name. I told my parents like what was wrong with you? I mean I mean they didn't even think about it. They didn't even realize that Maximilian comes from Maximus Latin, which means indeed the greatest. It was the name which was given to the emperors. And um there's a story behind my name. Uh, in the Busa family, we're, we're German-Swiss peasants from the central or next to St. Gallen in Switzerland. Uh, from father to eldest son for the last 700 years, the father would be called Melchior, who would then call his elder son Balthazar, who would then call his elder son Melchior, and then Balthazar, and he would go, it went on like this for hundreds of years. My granddad was Melchior. He hated that name. And so he had everybody call him Max. And he actually stopped that tradition. And my dad was not at all called Balthazar. And so uh, my parents wanted to call me Max. But 50 years ago, the only people or any only individuals were called Max were dogs. So, <laughs> so they thought, that's not, that's not prestigious enough. We can't call him Max because only dogs are called Max. So they called me Maximilian. And growing up, it was horrible because when you're a kid, you want to blend in, especially as I was the weird kid. I was the kid who was very different from everybody else, and it, it, I suffered a lot from it. So not only was I weird, but I had even a weird name. And then it's only when I, I grew up and I started becoming my own self and being more self-assured because I, I lacked a lot of that when I was growing up, that I realized it's great. It's cool to be different. Now, being the greatest... No way. Being, I, I don't want to be the greatest. You know what I would like people to say on my eulogy? What I was able to say on my dad's eulogy? He was a good man. If that will resonate when I'm gone, I'll have had a greater life. Max, it's been really, really great talking with you. Thanks so much for fitting us into your busy schedule. Come and see us again, okay? Likewise, Nadia. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Take care. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed all the great stuff Max shared with us. And if you like this episode, be sure to follow us on Instagram at hakawadi.fm and nadiamichelle underscore. You can also head to our website, themensroom.show, where you'll find links to all our previous episodes and also some great original merchandise like jewelry, laptop bags, and other amazing stuff all handcrafted in Beirut by the best local artisans. And you can ship it anywhere around the world for free. Hope to see you again soon.